Today on Understanding Immigration, criminal alien gangs. You know, they're forgetting who these people are targeting, and that's other immigrants in these immigrant communities. And I think it's very important for us to point out that if this program has ended, you will see more violent gang members enter the United States. The U.S. cannot be solely responsible in taking action against these gangs. You know, we need the governments of El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala to step up. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. This is Preston Hennikins with FAIR's lobbying team. And I'm joined as always by Matthew Tregesser from our media shop and Spencer Raley, our research director. Today, we're going to be discussing the continued growth of criminal alien gangs in the United States. Where do they come from? What is their history in our country? And what is law enforcement doing to stop them? Uh, but before we get into that, we're gonna dive into some recent immigration news. With the Electoral College uh, certifying Joe Biden's election victory on December 14th, we now know that immigration policy is likely going to change quite drastically. Uh, many, including those of us at FAIR, expect Biden and his team to take a significant step away from enforcing immigration laws that are already on the books. And already, because of uh, that prediction, there are new caravans forming south of Mexico. Under the Trump administration, we were able to prevent these caravans from reaching the United States because of our asylum agreements with the Northern Triangle countries as well as the migrant protection protocols that we had with uh, Mexico. So I wanna ask each of you this question. If Biden does end these asylum agreements, what is stopping massive caravans from reaching and entering the United States? Well, Preston, in short, nothing, especially if the Biden administration gets their entire wish list and ditches the migrant protection protocol, if they stop enforcing immigration law, especially in the first hundred day, like they, days like they've been talking about, freezing deportations, stopping building the wall, you know, withdrawing from the agreements we have in Mexico and Central America, there's, there's literally nothing that would stop these caravans from coming to the United States and successfully entering. Of course, one of the biggest deterrents right now is the fact that we have the migrant protection, uh, the MPP program, that uh, requires asylum applicants to stay in Mexico while their claims are being processed. And that has deterred a lot of these caravans because the people that are coming for the most part are economic migrants and that does not qualify for asylum. So they know now that they're not gonna be able to enter into the United States. And so they're opting to turn around and go home since there's very little chance that their claims will be approved. Getting rid of that, these potential illegal aliens will be able to come into the United States illegally, put forward a frivolous asylum claim, and then be released into the United States where a massive number of them are just never going to show up for their hearings, especially with the two-pronged promise of a deportation pause and a mass amnesty coming. So... Yeah, again, in short, there's very little to stop them from coming to the United States. In fact, the Biden administration is basically putting up a big welcome to America banner. You know, anyone who can get across the border is welcome to stay here. Right, Preston. I mean, it can't be understated how vital these asylum agreements and the MPPs were, you know, kind of to, to echo what Spencer said there. I mean, the MPPs had almost an immediate effect at the southern border in 2019 when they were first rolled out in January. 
In just over a year, 60,000 migrants, mostly from the Northern Triangle countries, were returned from the U.S. to Mexico until their court hearing date in the U.S. So uh, it acted as a huge deterrent. And again, as Spencer said, a lot of these migrants that are trying to apply for asylum in our country were coming for economic reasons or coming for better job opportunities, but that wasn't that doesn't qualify for asylum uh, in our country. And so, again, it, this is going to be a massive mistake for the Biden-Harris administration to unravel the MPPs, the uh, asylum cooperation agreements with the Central American countries. Um, and, you know, this caravan, there's one in particular that just left uh, Honduras uh, this this past week, but it's likely to be the first of many. I mean, it's, as Spencer said as well, you know, a lot of the policies proposed by the Biden-Harris administration are going to encourage illegal immigration, whether it's the deportation halts, the the stoppage of the uh, construction of the, of the southern border wall, or, you know, the an executive mass amnesty. I mean, all those things are uh, directly benefiting illegal aliens and expect this caravan to be uh, not the last one. It's going to be the first of many. And, you know, you're already seeing uh, right now surges in border migration. For instance, in April, there were 17,000 illegal alien apprehensions at our southern border. And in November, last month, it's up to 70,000, a more than 300% increase. And these migrants are well aware that the Biden-Harris proposals are going to benefit them. And we're going to see these numbers continue to grow. Uh, it's no surprising that they're growing. And, you know, it, it's going to be a, a tough a tough battle for uh, border officials at the southern border, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic when uh, resources are strained. Yeah, and it's going to be really interesting, I think, from a political perspective, how you know, the Biden-Harris team is going to address this because, you know, it, it was a very close election. And if you're seeing, you know, border states uh, that actually swung to, to Biden-Harris, like Arizona, getting overwhelmed with caravans, it's going to be all over the news. And if voters don't think that they're taking it seriously or that they're just, you know, throwing open the gates and letting everyone come through, you know, that, that could seriously backfire on them, um, particularly if it happens before the 2022 uh, midterm elections, which already the map is is looking better for Republicans than it is for Democrats. So it will be interesting to see if, you know, Biden and Harris do decide to take away these these agreements and, and really just let these caravans in and, and what the political fallout from that would be going into 2022. But, um, you know, so I want then, I think this actually leads us into our main topic today, uh, which is the discussion on criminal alien gangs. You know, unfettered illegal immigration brings all kinds of people to the country. And while many of them, you know, probably the majority of them simply just want to come here, earn money, live quietly in the shadows, uh, there's unfortunately uh, many examples of criminal aliens who come to the U.S. and then uh, continue their criminal behavior. You know, and the United States is no stranger to gangs, uh, as we all know. You know, cities such as Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, Baltimore, you know, they've all struggled with gang violence and continue to struggle with gang violence. Um, but now law enforcement is facing emerging threats from, uh, you know, foreign gangs and, and immigrant gangs that continue growing in our cities um, and the, the two best examples of these are probably MS-13 and Barrio 18. So, Matthew, you've tracked the reach of these gangs and, and seen their impact in the media. Uh, where are these gangs located and how do they continue to grow in the United States? Right. So I, I want to touch on in this segment, you know, on at least three of these gangs that have been 
an absolute nightmare for uh, law enforcement, our, the American citizens, and just immigration authorities uh, throughout the country. The first is MS-13, and they've probably been the most prominent and highlighted gang in recent years and have become a major priority for the Trump administration in the past four years. And this gang was formed by Salvadorans who settled in Los Angeles in the 1980s. Uh, and many of these Salvadorans at the time were fleeing a long and brutal civil war in El Salvador. Uh, then in the, in the ensuing years, other members uh, began to come from Honduras, Guatemala, and even Mexico. And the gang rapidly began to expand. And many people wonder, okay, what does the MS-13 gang name really mean? And the MS stands for Mara Salvatrucha, which is said to be a combination of Mara, meaning gang, Salva for Salvador, and Trucha, which translates roughly into street smarts. And then the number 13 represents the position of M in the English alphabet. Uh, their motto is pretty horrific. It, in Spanish, it is kill, rape, and control. They're notorious for using extreme violence and the usage of uh, machetes in much of their uh, crimes. And in 2012, the U.S. Treasury designated the gang to be a transnational criminal organization, which was actually the first street gang to uh, receive this designation. So uh, they have been prevalent for uh, several years now. And the FBI currently puts the size of them, of the gang, between 6,000 and 10,000 members in the U.S., making it one of the largest criminal enterprises uh, in the entire country. And so the, the, right now, the gang expands pretty much to every state in the United States. But most of the criminal activity, if you look at the data, they take place in three main states, which are California, Maryland, and New York. And this is not surprising, surprising given that all these states have sanctuary jurisdictions um, that shield illegal aliens from deportation, that uh, shield local law enforcement from providing uh, information to people like ICE on illegal immigrants and their jurisdictions. So again, it, it's these gangs have flourished in these types of open border states that support these policies. Um, and now, and as, as I said, the Trump administration has made tackling and combating MS-13 a large priority. In 2019, they arrested uh, more than 400 MS-13 gang members. Um, so there is at least they are trying to address this problem. Now, I want to highlight one specific case just to show how horrific. MS-13 is, uh, or how they have been in recent years. And this occurred in 2017, uh, right, actually right by DC in, uh, in Maryland, where a seven or an 18 year old actually was lured in by MS-13 gang members into Wheaton Regional Park, which was in Maryland. Uh, they choked him out until he passed out. They took turns slashing him with machetes and knives until he died. And then they severed his head, ripped his heart out and tossed his, uh, dismembered body parts into a grave all according to the Baltimore Sun. So this is one of the most horrific uh, incidents that uh, law enforcement saw in that area for almost in its entire history. And it goes to show you, you know, the, the types of, the, the type of threat that MS-13 currently presents to our country. Now, similar to MS-13, there is also the 18th Street Gang. And this is arguably the number one rival of the MS-13 gang, because they both actively recruit in Central America. They both want to see, be seen as the most violent and the most publicized criminal gang. Um, so there is a bit of rivalry between both of those gangs. But the 18th Street Gang, uh, they were formed in Los Angeles and California during the 1960s. They were mainly a Mexican street gang, actually formed on the uh, a street called 18th Street uh, in Los Angeles, which is how they got their name. And like I said, they also have expanded outside of just Mexican 
uh, nationals in terms of recruitment. They've expanded to Central American members. And the FBI cites that there are between 30,000 and 50,000 members in 20 states, which is obviously a, a huge number. And as you mentioned, too, the Barrio 18 gang also presents numerous uh, public safety risks to our country right now, as does the Latin Kings gang uh, in our country. And so, again, a lot of these gangs are not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. They're largely fueled by a poor southern border, sanctuary policies that don't uh, deport these individuals when they need to be deported. And under a Biden-Harris administration, you know, I would expect these gangs are going to proliferate, expand, and be able to recruit more members. So, you know, turning it to you, uh, Spencer, you know, obviously they present, these gangs present a lot of problems for our country, a lot of risks. You know, has the Trump administration, aside from, you know, arresting these individuals, have they done other initiatives to tackle these gang problems? Has Congress done anything? Um, you know, what can we do to curb these gangs and, you know, the recruitment of these gangs as well? Well, yeah, absolutely. And really, there's kind of the, the Trump administration and President Trump, almost as soon as he took office, began kind of a two-pronged approach to combating uh, gangs in the United States, whether it be the gang violence or just keeping uh, gang members from entering the United States. And the first thing he did was issue an executive order directing the federal government to develop a plan to combat uh the ongoing pandemic of gangs, as I like to call it, uh, especially targeting MS-13. And this originally led uh, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions to create the Transnational Organized Crime Task Force. And now outgoing uh, Attorney General Barr created a similar task force to kind of carry on that work known as Task Force Vulcan, you know, with a, you know, kind of a similar goal and what, and, and these efforts have been very effective to a certain degree. I mean, at this point, the two task force have prosecuted around 750 MS-13 gang members alone, along with, you know, members of these other uh, violent criminal gangs that we've discussed and also just other lone actors uh, and, you know, in uh, criminals from smaller gangs as well. And they did this largely through, you know, creating agreements with cities that were willing to do that, as well as using government resources, redirecting those to learn more about the gangs, learning where they operate, and trying to uh, catch them in some of their actions and, you know, figure out what their movements are and, and just be able to really take the fights fight to the streets, as, you know, as you would say. You know, they've also learned some very interesting things about these gangs as well in that process. For example, about 75% of, of the gang members that they've prosecuted so far are illegal aliens. These are people who entered the United States almost exclusively across the southern border. Most of them are not able to uh, obviously get a visa to come here legally. Some of them were recruited as lawful migrants while they're in the United States, but that's a very uh, a relatively small number and a comparatively small number have actually been U.S. citizens, and typically those U.S. citizens are second, third generation Americans whose families came from a, a nation like El Salvador. And you know, one thing MS-13 is really known for is pursuing 
young people who may have come to the United States as a UAC that they were recruiting to be gang members. And they'll, they'll send gang members to the United States to track these potential recruits down, either force them to join the gang or else, uh, you know, commit one of these violent, brutal murders like uh, Matthew was talking about just a little bit ago. So this is largely an issue with illegal immigration. So part of the approach the Trump administration has taken has been to try to secure the border along popular areas that gangs use to travel. And he's done that to quite a bit of success. You're seeing them try to mix up their strategy to enter the United States, whether it's, uh, you know, through trying to find a loophole and, you know, such as bringing young children to the United States and claiming to be family members, or even going out to more what they would call a high risk crossing area out in the middle of the desert where there's little protection and trying to cross that way. And that's, that's good from a strategic standpoint because when you have, you know, gang members, uh, drug smugglers, human traffickers, that, you know, that, that class of people trying to cross out in an open desert, it makes it a lot easier to track their movement and therefore to apprehend them. So you're seeing a, a concerted effort on those fronts to, uh, to try to take the fight to the, uh, you know, to these gangs. Another thing you've been seeing the Trump administration doing along with that is working with foreign governments to extradite and prosecute illegal alien gang members. That could be, that goes both ways. You've seen examples of uh, violent murderers uh, being able to escape the United States and going back to El Salvador, Guatemala, even Mexico, and those governments extraditing those criminals back to the United States for prosecution. And you've seen the other way around too, especially if you were to catch a gang member who maybe hasn't yet committed one of these horrific acts in the United States, but they have in, uh, you know, in, in, in their country of origin. You've been seeing the United States work with those countries to send them back to the country to face prosecution as well. So in some ways, it's a deterrence game. If you see, uh, if young people see that there's not a lot of value to joining these gangs, they're definitely going to be tracked down and prosecuted. It, it helps. Uh, it helps deter them from ever joining in the first place. And beyond that, it's a public safety issue. You know, it, it just it's part of the process of getting these criminals off the streets. The one other thing I wanted to, to touch on really quick, uh, the second prong that I see that the Trump administration has been using to, to combat gangs has been to, to try the best of their ability to close immigration loopholes. And the most successful one so far that we've already touched on just a little bit has been the Migrant Protection Protocol, uh, which in part requires asylum applicants to remain in Mexico or another safe country while their case is being processed. And what this has done is it's deterred, it's deterred gang members from posing as asylum applicants and then disappearing into the country and never showing up for their uh, for their hearings, this has been this has been very effective. And President-elect Joe Biden has promised to end this program. And I think it's very important for us to point out that if this program has ended, you will see more violent gang members enter the United States uh, using this loophole. The other thing that uh, you know has only been successful to a very small degree has been trying to close some of the loopholes that would allow MS-13 to infiltrate the United States by posing as the parents of uh, unaccompanied alien minors. This has been a little bit more difficult. Uh, it's obviously been in the, it's been through court battles. It's been in the front of the media, and so it's another area where you can fully expect the incoming Biden administration to take no action on. 
but it's it's an area of concern that the Trump administration has tried to take care of there as well. The other thing I think that's important, especially as we move into a, a presidential administration that is just honestly at this point doesn't look like they're going to place a high priority on combating these gangs in the United States is, is that local and state officials need to step up their game uh, and cooperate with ICE, Border Patrol, and other federal law enforcement agencies like the FBI to try to combat gangs just on a state-by-state, state, even a city-by-city city or county-by-county county level. And really, and you would think this would be obvious, that these counties and states would, across the board, want to work with federal law enforcement in order to identify, prosecute, and ultimately deport these gang members. But this isn't happening in a lot of the big cities and states, including the ones where these gangs have been the most active, such as Baltimore, Maryland, or New York City, um, pretty much all of California. Uh, you're seeing these states uh, implement sanctuary policies and actively try to release gang members back into society once they fulfill any state or local jail sentence, if that even happens. Uh, so, makes absolutely no sense because these gang members create you know violence. They actively work to get drugs into the hands of kids. They kidnap young women. They traffic humans, and do all sorts of other just despic despicable acts. And it makes no sense why any city, state, county. You know, any jurisdiction would want to protect these violent criminals versus, you know, placing them in the hands of federal law enforcement and getting them uh, deported out of the country. Spencer, can I, I just want to add one point to, to what you're saying there is, you know, people often forget, you know, especially lawmakers that, that support, you know, sanctuary legislation and try to protect, you know, uh, you know, criminal aliens from from being deported, you know, they're forgetting who these people are targeting. And that's, you know, other immigrants in these immigrant communities. And so it's it's really backwards that they think they're protecting immigrant communities, but they're not. They're they're just releasing the people that are extorting them, that are robbing them, that are shooting. I mean, it, it makes no sense to to say that you're in favor of protecting immigrants and immigrant communities when at the same time you are releasing criminal aliens back into those same communities to continue uh, terrorizing them. That's a very good point, Preston. I'm glad you brought that up. So it goes back to something we mentioned just briefly a little earlier, that a lot of these, especially with MS-13, a lot of their violent acts are a result of trying to track down gang members that have tried to flee the violence in El Salvador and other countries where they operate. So when they come to the United States, they're not only targeting U.S. citizens. They're not targeting, you know, even to an extent, only lawful migrants. They're going after other illegal aliens. They're going after other poor migrant families mm -hmm. because those are the easiest prey for them. So I, I, I really like that point. It's, it's not, these, these sanctuary policies are supposedly being put together to help protect you know, immigrants who just want to come here for work, but they don't do that. Often those are, that's the class that ends up being the most negatively affected. And just one more point I wanted to bring up because we often don't think about this. Uh, many of these gangs uh, 
come to the United States and the way they're most successful is they try to embed into society. They try to camouflage themselves and, you know, work undercover. And so one thing that we have seen that has been highly effective in a state-by-state -state basis, and states can do this, is to make E-Verify mandatory. And while that may not sound like an effective gang deterrence uh, strategy, what it does is it stops these gang members from trying to embed into society by picking up work and then using that as a base for their uh, undercover actions and other nefarious operations. You know, we see it time and time again, whether it's a drug smuggling ring, a human trafficking ring, or even, you know, just a, a front for other gang activity often happens when you have a group of people working for a particular business or starting their own business or, uh, you know, having some sort of cover so that they can be more effective and stay out of the stay out of the view of law enforcement. So if we were to put in some of these programs like E-Verify and make it mandatory, just make it that much harder for violent gang members to operate in the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's those are all, you know, really fantastic points. And, you know, it's interesting because when you think about this from, you know, a legislative angle, uh, there's really not a whole lot uh, that can be done in addition uh, to just enforcing laws on the books and just making sure that we're able to get criminal aliens into the deportation process. You know, there's there's a bill that was introduced early uh, in this current Congress, H.R. 98, which is the Criminal Alien Gang Member Removal Act. Uh, and, and all that does is that it gives asylum officers, it gives CBP officers and uh, immigration judges uh, the ability uh, and the deference to deny entry to people that are suspected of having gang activity um, right at the border. And, and that's an important tool, but, uh, you know, it's, and I, you know, I'm not disparaging the bill, but it's almost not necessary if you are just enforcing laws that are already on the books, if you're giving local and state law enforcement the tools that they need to get criminal aliens, you know, out of their jails, out of their prisons and into the removal process, um, then a lot of that becomes really kind of unnecessary. And so I think from the legislative angle, you just, what you have to do is you have to give these local jurisdictions the tools, um, first of all, you know, to, to extradite these people and to get them into the hands of federal law enforcement. Um, but also you have to pass legislation that prevents, you know, some of these more activist jurisdictions from becoming sanctuary cities or from shielding criminal illegal aliens and things like of that nature. Uh, and so I don't know if, if either of y'all had had other ideas on that, on what maybe can be done further with tools that already exist to, to crack down on these gangs. Well, I, I think one element we haven't really touched on yet, which I think actually should be very much highlighted, is the fact that the U.S. cannot be solely responsible in taking action against these gangs. You know, we need the governments of El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala to step up. And you look at a country like Mexico, you know, large regions of the country are run by criminal Mexican cartels. And these gangs kind of operate in a similar sense in the Northern Triangle countries. And this is not only driving the Northern Triangle uh, or people that live in these Northern Triangle countries to migrate to the U.S., but then they try to seek asylum. And unfortunately, gang violence doesn't qualify for uh, U.S. political asylum uh, in our country right now. You have to be persecuted by your government based on your race, your religion, uh, your nationality, political opinion or membership to a particular social group. So this creates 
uh, all kinds of problems. You know, it increases the backlog of asylum cases. It has more people showing up to the border. Families are essentially let down. And then the other thing is, is they can't return back to their home countries because these gangs are just dominating a lot of uh, large regions of these countries. So the U.S. really needs to negotiate and work in better cooperation with these uh, Northern Triangle countries. We can, of course, offer intelligence and other forms of assistance, but there needs to be more pressure put on these Northern Triangle governments in our countries because they're simply not doing enough to curb this problem that is existing in our country and also in their own countries. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. And that, I mean, that really gets to the root of the issue, which is that these gangs do have such a huge reach uh, in their home countries and that these governments, you don't necessarily have the tools, the the willpower to to combat them, um, and and really until that changes, there's these gangs are gonna gonna always exist, um, and so I think you bring up a good point for advocating for kind of a two pronged method where from from our State Department and from you know kind of our foreign policy outlook, we're able to to help these countries to give them ideas on how to to stop these gangs, um, but here at home we have to be really vigilant in cracking down on the gangs here, because a lot, you know, in, if, especially if you're talking about drug sales and, and things like that, a lot of the customers are in the United States. And that's one of the issues that we've always had um, dealing particularly with the Mexican cartels is that all of their all of their profits come from selling drugs, people, what it, whatever it be in the, in the US. Um, and until our law enforcement is really able to tackle the issue here, we're not really able to, to address the, the root cause in the country of origin. And, and one thing that Matthew mentioned, I want to I want to touch on a little bit further is that right now our immigration system is backlogged, and our immigration law enforcement officers, whether with ICE or CBP, are just overwhelmed. So one thing I think that local law enforcement uh, agencies can do that would be extremely helpful is to take part in the 287G program. Mm. And essentially, what this does is it allows, after you know some training it allows local law enforcement to help ICE expedite the process of uh, transferring and ultimately deporting illegal aliens. And of course, most of local law enforcement officers are going to come in contact with gang members when they're you know, selling drugs or committing crimes at a local level. And so if you've got an office that's already taking uh, advantage of this program, it takes a lot off the plate of our already overwhelmed officers at ICE and CBP. Yeah, you know, Spencer, that's that's a great point. And I think that's a uh, as good a point as any to, to end on today. We hope that uh, for you listening at home that you've enjoyed today's episode and perhaps learned something new about the danger that criminal alien gangs pose uh, both to American citizens and, and, and uh, American cities, but also to the immigrant communities that are in our cities and in our country. Uh, and as a reminder, we're going to be releasing a new episode every other Monday. There is going to be a, a brief pause during the holiday season, but we'll be back in January to continue uh, with this podcast. So our episodes are available on most platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also visit our website, fairus.org, and our Twitter handle, at Fair Immigration, to access these episodes. So please spread the word and share this podcast with people that you think may be interested in learning more about immigration and its impact on the United States. And until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by FAIR.